Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, Hallie tells us about Nellie Bly, the scrappy young reporter who faked mental illness so that she could sneak her way into a mental hospital to find out the truth about its conditions and the people committed there. Expect foul language, but we're also going to be talking about gender roles and mental health in the late 1800s. The conditions those living on Blackwell Island endured are horrific, so please listen with care. Let's get ready for another Human Exception. I guess, Hal, you're next with Nathan that's going last. Ooh, it's me! Alright, let me close a billion tabs and go back to the thing that I needed to be at. (laughs) So, yes, weirdly we're going to talk just a teeny bit about the whole domesticity of women and on and on. It's going to come up a little bit in here. I have a nice little section, a chunk of something that I'm going to read to you verbatim. I don't normally do this. Um, big oh. chunks of things. But I think this is worth it. Um, this is chapter one of Ten Days in a Madhouse by Nellie Bly. Oh. Which is who we're going to talk about. She starts off, on the 22nd of September, I was asked by the world, just side note, it was the New York world, which was the newspaper she was starting to work for. Not, not she physical, wasn't not asking the, actual the world. world. <laughs> right. Yeah, I thought I'd clarify there. <laughs> I was asked by the world if I could have myself committed to one of the asylums for the insane in New York with a view to writing a plain and unvarnished narrative of the treatment of the patients therein and the methods of management, etc. I'm also going to note, obviously, she's using verbiage from the time. Just note that. Um, did I think I had the courage to go through such an ordeal as the mission would demand? Could I assume the characteristics of insanity to such a degree that I could pass the doctors, live for a week among the insane without the authorities finding out that I was only taking there taking notes? I said I believed I could. I had some faith in my own ability as an actress, and I thought I could assume insanity long enough to accomplish any mission entrusted to me. Could I pass a week in the insane ward at Blackwell's Island? I said I could, and I would, and I did. My instructions were to simply go on with my work as soon as I felt that I was ready. They really didn't think she was going to do this. I'm also going to note that. <laughs> they, were not, they were basically like, no woman has balls of brass that big that they're going to get. And she was like, oh, no, I'll fucking do it. Like, <laughs> fuck all of you. I'm going to go do this thing. Um I was to chronicle faithfully the experiences I underwent and once within the walls of the asylum to find out and describe its inside workings, which are always so effectually hidden by white-capped nurses, as well as by bolts and bars from the knowledge of the public. We do not ask you to go there for the purpose of making sensational revelations. Write up things as you find them, good or bad, give praise or blame as you think best, and the truth, and the truth all the time. But I am afraid of that chronic smile of yours, said the editor. I will smile no more, I said, and I went away to execute my delicate and, as I found out, difficult mission. 
If I did get into the asylum, which I hardly hoped to do, I had no idea that my experiences would contain naught else but a simple tale of life in an asylum. That such an institution could be mismanaged and that cruelties could exist neath its roof, I did not deem possible. I always oh, had a no. desire to know asylum. Oh, I know. It's real, real fucking bad. <laughs> it's real fucking bad, y'all. Uh, trigger warning on this entire fucking thing. Um... I always had a desire to know asylum life more thoroughly, a desire to be convinced that the most helpless of God's creatures, the insane, were cared for kindly and properly. The many stories I had read of abuses in such institutions I had regarded as wildly exaggerated, or else romances, yet there was a latent desire to know positively. I shuddered to think how completely insane, how the completely insane were in the power of their keepers, and how one could weep and plead for release, and all of no avail, if the keepers were so minded. Eagerly, I accepted the mission to learn the inside workings of the Blackwell Island Insane Asylum. How will you get me out? I asked my editor, after I once get in. I do not know, he replied, but we will get you out if we have to tell who you are and for what purpose you feigned insanity. Only get in. I had little belief in my ability to deceive the insanity experts, and I think my editor had less. <laughs> <laughs> All of the preliminary preparations for my ideal were left to be planned by myself. They, they gave her nothing. She did this all on her own. Oh my god. Only one thing was decided upon, namely, that I should pass under the pseudonym of Nellie Brown, the initials of which would agree with my own name and my linen, so that there would be no difficulty in keeping track of my movements and assisting me out of any difficulties or dangers I might get into. There were ways of getting into the insane ward, but I did not know them. I might adopt one of two courses. Either I could feign insanity at the house of friends, or get myself committed on the decision of two competent physicians, or I could go to my goal by the way of the police courts. That was chapter one. <laughs> uh, what? Yeah. yeah, it's real. So I, I don't know how familiar either of you are with Nellie Bly. Um, no. mm -mm. It's a really interesting figure, and she did some fucking buck wild shit. Uh, in in a time and age, same kind of thing you were talking about, Kayla, when women weren't supposed to be doing this shit. This was would have been in the early 1900s. So here's a picture of Miss Bly when she was about 24 years old. Nice. These are it's all available, color. like Library of Congress. Yeah, 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 and it's a very good photograph. Like it is. Mm -hmm. It's shockingly clear for the day and age. Um. So I am actually working on a larger piece that I've mentioned to you all. I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast, but we've talked about it a little bit in passing about the Chamberlain Con Act of 1918. And we will talk it. That one might have to be a two-parter because it's really, really, really infuriating. And essentially it boils down to, so that would have been 1918. It started in the U.S. It made its way over to the U.K. It spread across Europe a little bit. It was, you know, the name changed. But essentially the idea was that um, during this time, because World War One was, God, I can't even remember now. That would have been, 19, okay, so it was 19. right after or right during, yeah, as the war ended. Um, for some reason I blanked out on that. And certain individuals in politics and in the churches 
uh, decided that women walking arm in arm with returning soldiers were probably like, you know, sluts. And they didn't want that to happen. And venereal disease was spreading. But of course, only a woman could spread it. A man couldn't actually spread it. <laughs> so they would just, these towns would just lock women up if they saw you doing anything they didn't like. And it didn't matter what it was. If you're standing on a street corner, they could just be like, we need to test you for venereal disease. And then they would test you and test you and test you. I'm reading a book called The Trials of Nina McCall right now. She was from near actually where I live in Michigan. And she was harassed by um, the basically the state health board for years. And eventually took them to court for it. Yeah. Nice. So anyways. Yeah. So I... In conjunction with that, I ran across Nellie Bly's full story. I knew her as a journalist. I knew her as a woman who took a trip around the world that became very famous for a little while. I didn't know the depth of her work um, in, in, in what she is talking about, what I had read to you in the very beginning. Hmm. Um, so it feels only appropriate that as the book was kind of talking about her and how she was breaking molds and also finding out why women were being locked up in asylums, which had to do with the Chamberlain Con Act. Uh, so we go round and round about um, there a lot. Uh, it all wound up being connected and then my brain exploded a little bit. Um, <laughs> all right. So Nellie, yeah, I know it's a, it's a fucking lot and I can't read the book for more than like an hour in a sitting before I uh, want to go stab people. So um, it's very, very angering. Uh, so Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly was born Elizabeth Jane Cochran on May 5th, 1864 in Armstrong County in Pennsylvania. Her father was a mill worker who later then bought the mill and the land around it. And he became a merchant postmaster and associate justice in the town. Sure. <laughs> butcher baker candlestick maker associate justice to the supreme court i don't know um they eventually named the town after him so it is still to this day called cochran's mills he was married twice and he had a whopping 10 children with his first wife oh my and five more with his second a lot of kids what the fuck a lot of fucking That's kids she was one of the last uh, nelly was okay. Yeah, it's a lot of lot of fucking fucking. That's just it. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> just stop it. Oh, it's too much. Ugh. Um, she was one of the last children born to her dad, and her dad died when she was six. So started her life quite wealthy and then it immediately plummeted. Um <sighs> You know, she was too young to know the difference until she got older. So I find it very charming, this little factoid. So when she was young, Nellie was known as pink to her siblings and her friends because it was her favorite color and she wore it everywhere. <laughs> I think it's very cute. And yeah, uh, when Nellie got older, she wanted to be seen as more sophisticated. So she stopped wearing her favorite color dropped the nickname, and then changed her surname to Cochrane, which isn't any better than Cochrane. She added an E on the end. I have no idea why. So, um, I don't know what makes that more sophisticated, but it's charming that she thought that. Uh, she only attended one semester at the Indiana Normal School, now the Indiana <laughs> University of Pennsylvania. 
Normal school. All right. Normal school. What do you, what do you learn at the normal school? I don't know. It's a completely foreign concept know. to me. This is this yeah. is the school for completely normal children with no mutant powers at all. <laughs> for no normal children, and it's empty. Um, But, I mean, the school still exists in a form of a proper higher ed organization. Um, Money troubles, of course, forced her to drop out after that one semester. She never had any formal university or college education, especially in a day and age where that was like the only thing that would vault you maybe into a certain type of job as a woman in the late 1800s. And she just she just was like, yeah, I'm just going to do this stuff. And I think you'll see that tenacity throughout her story where she's someone, usually a man, tells her no. And she just goes, okay, and then does it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Which you'll see here in just a second. So let's start out with her first outrage. Which I also am just like, yes, queen. Yeah, oh, I hate myself that I did that. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm too old for that. Uh, uh, she decided that uh, when a column appeared in an 1885 edition of the Pittsburgh Dispatch titled What Girls Are Good For, oh no, she, oh, she no. decided she wanted to um, write in and correct that author. <laughs> Excellent. Just, I love just so it. fucking so fucking ballsy. It's so fucking ballsy. And I fucking love it. I think I have I will attach this for you all in um the chat. It is available on Nellie Bly's like historic website that'll also be linked in the show notes. Um one of the articles that she responds to later is called Mad that she writes is called Mad Marriages, which is just fucking great. Um so I also kind of laughed when I read this. <laughs> column title what girls are good for i've seen that kind of mansplaining referred to as correctile dysfunction and i will now forever call it that <laughs> that is really fucking funny <laughs> so whoever originated that brava wow Win. brilliant <laughs> so in this really heinous column um if we're being generous to call it such, uh, you know, that, the author states that, quote, girls were principally for birthing children and keeping house. So as Nellie was wont to do, she sought to correct men when they stepped out of line, so she wrote a response under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl. The editor of the paper at the time, George Madden, was so impressed by Bly's passion and command of language and ran an ad seeking the author's true identity. When Bly stepped forward, Madden gave her a column of her own under that same pseudonym. The first article published in the Pittsburgh Dispatch by Nellie Bly was titled The Girl Puzzle and argued that, quote, not all women would marry and that was what needed, that what was needed ugh, were better jobs for women. Pretty groundbreaking stuff for the late 19th century, but she was also at the time writing on some coattails of early suffragettes in the U.S. So hmm. worth noting there, too. She was picking it up without even realizing quite what she was doing, I think. And I, I find that fascinating. Um, that second article, Mad Marriages, that was her second one. It was about divorce's effect on women. She argued for divorce law reform. This article was published under the byline Nellie Bly, N-E-L-L-I-E, as we know her now, 
even though Nellie intended her byline to be Nellie, N-E-L-L-Y, instead of I-E. And she just kind of stuck with it. And so that's forever how we know her now. I find that also mildly charming. (laughs) That she was just like, yeah, sure, you can call me whatever. I don't care. As long as it gets published. Like, sure. Um, The editor, George Madden, after that second article, hired her full time, which is pretty great. Yes. You can read those full articles online um, at nellieblyonline.net. That's how you know that website's probably pretty old. It's a .net. Uh, But it is a fascinating website. It's a really good place for research. You can view the original articles um, that she published throughout the course of her lifetime. Also, her books are on here. There's all kinds of p- really cool pictures. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a, there's lots of interesting little tidbits on there. So definitely look at that if you would like to read more. Uh, so Nellie's early career gets launched. And as a journalist, she focused on the lives of working women. And it's here that she got her first taste of investigative reporting. She wrote an expose on women factory workers. But the newspaper received complaints from the factory owners about her writing. So, of course, Nellie was then relegated to the women's pages for coverage and, you know, dealing with womanly things like fashion and gardening. <laughs> yeah. She decided this was BS and that she was going to, quote, do something no girl has ever done before. So at 21 years old, she went to Mexico to become a foreign correspondent. Oh, just absolutely fucking balls of brass. Um, Here's 21-year-old Nellie in Mexico. That is is such a good picture. It's a great picture. That dress is baller. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is so, so good. These pictures are incredible. I was glad to have something that I actually have real pictures of. Instead of like Nibiru. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what do you mean there's real pictures in the bureau <laughs> come on what am i talking about so she goes to mexico she spends six months there reporting on the lives and customs of the mexican people which were later published into the book six months in mexico unfortunately she then had to flee the country when she protested the imprisonment of a local journalist who was criticizing the mexican government At the time, Mexico's president was Porfirio Diaz, who ran a hardcore dictatorship. Uh, Diaz is his own, like, character. As soon as I saw that name, I was like, oh, fuck, yeah, you better run. Oh, it's like the Pol Pot of Mexico. Just bad, bad, bad. Um, Mexican authorities, under Diaz's orders, threatened Bly with arrest, but even once safely home, she accused Diaz of being a, quote, tyrannical czar suppressing the Mexican people and controlling the press. Just badass. I love it. Can't stop Um, this. Seriously. Yeah, 21 years old. And she's like, you know what? Just middle finger to all of you. I hate all of this. Like, can we fix this? It's great. Like, just just a totally different cut of person, I think, for that time and age, particularly. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, So she didn't, no, she really didn't stop. So what came next was the investigative report that would put her name on the map and also land her in the annals of journalistic history. So we're going to talk about this Blackwell Island and New York City Mental Health Hospital expose. 
So she comes back home from Mexico. They're still sticking her on the society pages at the Pittsburgh Dispatch. She tells the paper, I'm leaving. I'm going to New York City. Bly left as her resignation the following note to her former employer. I am off for New York. Look out for me. Bly. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking great. Great. Ugh. Ugh. She was, and I don't want to make it sound like she wasn't... The reason that so many doors opened for her is one, she was white, two, she was young, three, she was quite pretty, and four, she had this charm about her mixed with smarts that kind of confused people. And by the time they got around to understanding what she was doing, she'd already blown way past them. So so she knew what she was doing, which I think is really cool. Um, So she goes to New York. And she gets rejected so many times because the news editors there wouldn't hire a woman. Even with a byline of her own in the previous paper, they kind of scoffed at her. You know, New York City is like a big, you know, place where business happens and men <laughs> and I don't know. It's, it is that way. Um, so she spends months without any income, living on basically nothing. But she uses her wit and smarts to eventually talk her way into the offices of one Joseph Pulitzer, the man who the prize is named after, the investigative reporting prize. Um, His newspaper at the time was called the New York World, which we talked about before. This really cool picture is called Newspaper Row in New York City in the late 1800s. That's what it looked like. Oh, neat. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, it's really... The photographs are just, like, so fucking cool. Oh, I hit the wrong button. There we go. Oh, oh no. All right. So her very first assignment was that one that would make her famous. To, quote, feign insanity in order to be admitted to the Women's Lunatic Asylum, a mental institution on Blackwell's Island, now known as Roosevelt Island, in New York City. The world's managing editor at the time... Colonel John A. Cockerill, I swear to God, that's what it is, along with Pulitzer, promised to secure her release. Here is the lovely Joseph Pulitzer at, uh, I think it's 40 years old. These dudes knew how to dress. Yeah. It's got good hair, too. Check that out. Good hair, velvet on everything. Yeah. Like velvet on starch on velvet. Got that, got that good uh, good beard trim going. Got the good beard going. Got them. Is it a monocle or a set of glasses? I can't quite tell. It's glass. No, that's like glasses. A, like a pinch it's glasses nose. With, yeah. with the string, though. There we mm. go. Glasses with the string. Boots with the fur. That's it. <laughs> um. <laughs> ah, shit. Making myself laugh tonight. This is not bode well. All right. So, getting into this place was an entire procession. Um, So Bly uses the alias Nellie Brown, which she had talked about before, and she manages to get past the asylum's matron, a woman named Mrs. Irene Stennard, duping her and the residents of what was called the Temporary Home for Females. It was essentially a, um, what do they call that, Uh, like a shelter? For yeah. women, shelters were in this line of of trying to, quote, help 
homeless women and raise them out of poverty or if they were pulled in under the that act of 1918 uh, they were sometimes put in these houses um, they were run typically by women that doesn't mean that was a good thing uh yeah so essentially it was like a it was like a a, a wayward house for you know for women who they yanked off the street so she manages to get past that kind of like first hurdle to get all the way to the asylum there were checks but they didn't balance each other out was the problem um she was also quick and clever enough to convince a police officer a justice of the peace and two medical experts at bellevue hospital that she needed to go to the insane asylum <laughs> so she got past that one the next screening process because it wasn't like, you know, don't pass go, don't collect $200, go to the insane asylum. You had to go through these locks, essentially. And it, it, it's the same thing as today. There was a screening process. It just didn't work. They just picked whoever they Considering wanted. Considering how, like, they're just throwing people in there, it's, it's funny that it's so hard right. to get in. It, it, and they didn't believe her because their thought of of insanity, madness of severe mental illness you know of the different obviously i'm using terminology from the time um was that only people who were in poverty could be insane so here is this well-dressed bathed clean white woman who is coming in and saying i i i can't handle it out here i need to go to blackwell island and they're like whoa 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 whoa, whoa. i'm not gonna throw her in there we're gonna look crazy if we do that you know so it's <laughs> You're fine. You're fine. There were several, there are tons of papers, um, again, they're, they're linked in my notes, um, about uh, her imp the impression she made on people when she was going through this process and how they were, they were just totally baffled by her. And she's so charming and well-spoken. Clearly she's fine, you know, she's not <laughs> as bad as she says she is. It's a really interesting backhanded compliment to be like, well, you don't know your own mind, Eddie. You're a woman. Bam. You know, you're well taken <laughs> care of. Isn't that all you need? <laughs> so she gets past all of these people. And then these medical experts at Bellevue Hospital send her to Blackwell's. But even then, she's followed by newspaper reporters who come to see this mysterious new resident. <laughs> because apparently there was nothing else to do than report on the clean, pretty well-dressed white woman who was coming into the insane asylum it's fucking weird isn't that it is weird? So weird i know <laughs> I don't... it's really weird it gets weirder like it just does um so a little more explanation on this whole locking women up and how you got there essentially at this time like i had mentioned women could be locked away from almost anything that was considered to be disagreeable didn't want to have sex with your husband off to the asylum you go clearly or you're living crazy. on the streets <laughs> Clearly you're crazy. Why do you not want that dick? Come on. Um, lesbian? Clearly you just need dick. Go to the asylum. Like, it's just the same, like, oh you know. Um, poor and living on the streets, begging for food. You could easily be picked up by the police and thrown into a cell. Not in jail, but at a lunatic asylum. Considered a loose woman and seen on the arm of an enlisted soldier, where clearly you were a danger to society and the impressionable Ben who just couldn't help but get boners at the sight of a pretty lady. It was also widely thought that poverty and mental illness went hand in hand. If you were mentally ill, you were so because you deserved it for being poor. And many people preached that 
and this is a direct quote, I'm going to apologize uh, at the top of this, preached that, quote, the poor were largely violent, dirty, and morally contagious, responsible for their own poverty and liable to spread moral decay. And furthermore, that, quote, the poor needed to learn to enjoy work. Morally contagious and need to learn to enjoy contagious. work. Yeah, that's uh... contagious. pretty bad. Pretty bad. I want to note that those are the words of a uh, a well-known uh, woman at the time who was doing charity work. Mm. So, mm. yeah, it's cool. Excellent. It's great. It's Good. so fun. Um, so Blackwell Island and the Women's Lunatic Asylum were particularly well-known at this time. And I'm going to give you a little picture here of this place. Pretty imposing looking building. That looks like classic insane asylum. Yeah. Sure does. Sure that's does. Like, that's like that's what shows shit. up when you look at like an encyclopedia. A hundred percent. Yeah, it is like it's like bedlam. It's like any of those any of those places. Um so I'm gonna quote from a paper. Uh, titled A Portrait of the New York City Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island by Austin C. LeBow at Utah State University. It was written back in 2014. I highly doubt Austin is listening, but Austin, I enjoyed your paper. Just <laughs> so you know. <laughs> it was a very good resource for this when we're talking about this particular place. New York City legislators were eager to apply the ideals of organization and efficiency that were flourishing in the rapidly industrializing city to the public sector. They hoped that by doing so, they could battle the city's rampant corruption, lift its poor out of poverty, combat crime, care for its sick, and morally elevate its citizens. This was the era of Tammany Hall and Boss Tweed, well-known mobster type places and people at the time uh, and New York City's political leaders were loath to cede control of anything to the state including its insane asylums city officials pushed back and part of this strategy to meet in the middle was the insane asylum the first iteration of the asylum on Blackwall Island was the New York City lunatic asylum which opened all the way back in 1839 by 1890 Quote, it was home to a prison, a charity hospital, men's and women's alms houses, a workhouse, a smallpox hospital, a chapel, and the second largest insane asylum in the country on a little island off the coast of New York City. Excellent. They built a smallpox hospital there. Perfect. And, you know, right next to places where people being are being held in close proximity. Mm -hmm. yeah. With dirty water and contaminated food. Yep. That's a win right uh, there. In eight, it's just, it's great. I don't see any problems with that plan. None. Not one. <laughs> <laughs> in 1870, Blackwall Island Asylum became, quote, an all-women's asylum, and the men were transferred to a branch asylum on nearby Ward's Island. By 1880, the two asylums on Blackwell's and Ward's Island had grown to be the second and third largest asylums in the country, with nearly one in every 13 asylum patients in the country living on four small islands in the Hudson River. Fucking what? It's, it's even worse. Um, and I, I literally, the next line that I did not look at until right now says, and even worse. Oh, yay, past <laughs> me. Good job. <laughs> Clearly, I continue to think the same way, so that's good. 
Uh, quote, in 1885, 400 patients on Blackwell's Island had to sleep on the floor each night, and 300 had to stand while they ate. Whoa. Yeah. That's... There's yeah. some problems there. I don't think overcrowded quite covers how bad. Fuck. Yeah. Now, clearly at this time, mental illness could mean an array of things. They had a different idea about that. And women in particular were locked away for no reason whatsoever. The only reason given was that a man in her life thought her to be troublesome, and off she went to a place where getting in was fairly easy, but getting out was incredibly difficult. And the asylums on Blackwell Island were notoriously understaffed and under-resourced, with patients contracting scurvy and other illnesses, while violent patients often got away with beating other patients. Those working at the asylums were underpaid or not paid at all and suffered in the same conditions as the patients. If you were an orderly at one of these places at this time, you typically lived at the asylum, in the asylum. Wow. So you, you didn't you might, leave. You might as well be That's like, fucked up. committed. <laughs> yeah. Especially Essentially, if you're not getting paid. yeah. Not getting paid or you're getting paid nothing. It's not it's traveling back and forth every day is going to cost you more than your wages. Absolutely. And so they just lived there. And a lot of the orderlies wound up being criminals themselves. So you have orderlies beating patients, other patients beating patients, like not good. It's not good. good. Nope. So Nellie Bly arrives on Blackwell's Island in 1887. It's a little, little section here from her writing. Quote, on reflection, I thought it wiser not to inflict myself upon my friends or to get any good natured doctors to assist me in my purpose. Besides, to get to Blackwell's Island, my friends would have had to feign poverty, and unfortunately for the end I had in view, my acquaintance with the struggling poor except my own self was only very superficial. So I determined upon the plan which led me to the successful accomplishment of my mission. No one writes like this anymore. I just want to note that. Like, no one writes like this. It's great. Um, I succeeded in getting committed to the insane ward at Blackwell's Island, where I spent 10 days and nights and had an experience which I shall never forget. I took upon myself to enact the part of a poor, unfortunate, crazy girl, and felt it my duty not to shirk any of the disagreeable results that should follow. I became one of the city's insane wards for that length of time, experienced much, and saw and heard more of the treatment accorded to this helpless class of our population. And when I had seen and heard enough, my release was promptly secured. I left the insane ward with pleasure and regret. Pleasure that I was once more able to enjoy the free breath of heaven. Regret that I could not have brought with me some of the unfortunate women who lived and suffered with me and who, I am convinced, are just as sane as I was and am now myself. But here let me say one thing. From the moment I entered the insane ward on the island, I made no attempt to keep up the assumed role of insanity. I talked and acted just as I do in ordinary life. Yet strange to say, the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier I was thought to be, by all except one physician, whose kindness and gentle ways I shall not soon forget. Fucking bonkers. So yeah, that, that I mean, and that's, I feel like that's a, a trope that gets used, but it really was and still is kind of true. The saner you act in these places, the more like, oh, you're just trying to get out. They expect you to act totally off the wall. Um, so 
Bly writes up her report, and it's posted a chapter a day, one chapter per each day of her time there. People are clinging to this, waiting for the next installment to come out. It makes national headlines, and it rocks the entire country. I want to give you a picture of uh, what the place she stayed in looked like. Oh, my God. Yep. So just a bunch of women packed into one room. There's no fireplaces. There's no heating yeah, in these places. Yeah, they're all bundled up. Bundled yeah. up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're covered from head to toe. It is, and you couldn't, there weren't enough blankets to go around. People were fighting over all of this. It was brutal, brutal. Bly described inedible food, ice cold baths, and beatings with brooms. Um, this picture is from the Museum of the City of New York. It's in the Getty Images collection. It's really disturbing to look at. Yeah, um, you're, so. they're creating a space where people would act as if they are irrational, but really like mm -hmm. being angry and quote crazy in a place like that is the is the right response. 100%. And if you weren't crazy when you went in there, by the time you got out or by the time yeah. you were there for a few days, even you were probably already driven to the edge of what a human can withstand. Yeah. Um, well, I is, uh, yeah, yeah, the images are wild. Uh, oh, and I had another picture for you. Sorry, I forgot about this. This was a drawing of her um, getting by one of the doctors. I don't know why I find that interesting, but it's just, like, so weird. It's this man standing kind of over her, in front of her. Yeah, like, looking at her through, like, a magnifying glass. Like, mm, yes, I can see the insane particles floating about in your eyes. I don't know. It's just bizarre. And like, just the random nurse standing in the background. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, this is normal-ish. I'm sure. He Fine. does it every day. He swears up and down. Yeah. They're totally crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Bly's report, quote, recounted nearly every abuse and deficit found by the state committee earlier that year in graphic detail. The food had there had been so greatly improved that had been so greatly improved over the last ten years previously had again deteriorated to the point of being barely edible. The beautiful grounds, often boasted of by asylum officials, proved a little comfort. Women were not permitted to bathe themselves, instead being scrubbed mercilessly by other patients, one after what? another in the same cold water. Mm -hmm. Oh, Attendants no. were lazy, cruel, and vindictive, and all the work was done by patients. Attendants enjoyed beating and tormenting patients. Just horrible. Yeah. And if someone, as they're listening to this, goes, well, surely some of the women there were probably immigrants and couldn't really speak English, you would be absolutely correct. Immigrant women made up a very large portion of the population there. Um, quote, Bly made a point of talking to as many women as she could. Among the sane ones, she found that many were immigrants who didn't understand English and seemed to have been mistakenly committed to the island. Mistakenly. Can't understand a damn thing she says. She's obviously crazy. She's obviously, she's done there speaking in tongues. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, others were just poor and thought they were going to a poor house, not an insane asylum, she wrote. All related horrible stories of neglect and heartless cruelty just awful and i am so sorry about this what i'm about to read it's bad 
Mrs. Cotter, quote, a pretty delicate woman told Bly that, quote, for crying, the nurses beat me with a broom handle and jumped on me, injuring me internally, so that I shall never get over it. She said the nurse then tied her hands and feet, threw a sheet over her head to muffle her screams, and put her in a bathtub of cold water. Quote, oh they held me under until I gave up every hope and became senseless. So they essentially waterboarded her. Yeah. Yep. Huh? Uh, quote, the beatings I got there were something dreadful, Bridget McGinnis told Ply. I was pulled around by the hair, held under water until I strangled, and, and I was choked and kicked. It was hopeless to complain to the doctors, for they always said it was the imagination of our diseased brains. And besides, we would get another beating for telling. Cool, 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 it's, cool. Yeah, cool, cool. Gaslighting is great. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, nurse, <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, nurses drugged inmates with, quote, so much morphine and chloral that the patients are made crazy, Bly reported. The attendants seem to find amusement and pleasure in exciting the violent patients to do their worst, she wrote. Oh, good. She got out of there after 10 days. She hadn't slept hardly. She hardly hadn't eaten. And um, she then writes these entries and her editor couldn't get her out. He had to bring lawyers in from the newspaper. Wow. To essentially pull her out of there. Yeah. They couldn't get her out on on her on their own, which is But he was a yeah. man. He uh, should have just been able to sign her out. Uh-huh. And a very wealthy, well known, well connected one. Wow. And they wouldn't let her out. Yeah. Even with proof. So Though sorry to, to leave the suffering women, Bly was eager to write about what she had seen. The subsequent expose originally appeared in the world as a two-part illustrated series, the first on October 10th, 1887, entitled Behind Asylum Bars. Her exposure of the abuses on Blackwell's Island was one of New York's most extraordinary sensations of the time, and readers rushed to read the next installment of the interesting story published in the October 16th, 1887 issue entitled Inside the Madhouse. Her reporting and daring made her a permanent staff member at the paper, and her series was published as a book later on titled Ten Days in a Madhouse. Uh, lost my place. There we go. Quote, Bly's fearless investigation brought about much needed reforms for inpatient treatment at the asylum, and her work forever changed the field of journalism. The budget appropriation for the Department of Public Charities and Corrections was increased from $1.5 million to $2.34 million, and $50,000 was specifically designated for Blackwell's asylum. Seven years after the expose was published, the asylum closed. Good. Yeah. Wow. The entire thing that you can read it, it is um, on the open web. It's open source because it's quite sold. Uh, you can read the entire 10 days at a madhouse online at the University of Pennsylvania's website. Um, the website looks janky, but it kind of reminds me of like the Gutenberg project. So <laughs> it works. <laughs> um, but after that, her career kind of goes up and down it's interesting so her career skyrockets immediately after the expose in the year after in 1888 she suggests to her editor that like jules verne she should take a trip around the world she winds up circumnavigating the globe in just over 72 days and traveled alone for almost the entire journey 
By doing this, she set a world record, but it only stood for a few months before a man named George Francis Train completed the same journey in 67 days. But it's interesting because she became so famous so quickly. Here's a picture of this game that people were encouraged to buy and tr help track her movement across the, the world. The world I know, right? San Diego. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Yeah, around the world with Anneli Bly. I just, it's just so interesting. Um, the actual picture of her in her little traveling houndstooth dress excellent. and coat and bag is excellent. Um, this is a drawing of her reception back to New York City once she got there, which I also think is really cool. Like all these people there to meet her. And yeah, it was like a big fucking deal. Uh, I don't know if I have any more pictures, do I? No, I don't. I gave you all the good ones. I actually showed all the pictures this time. Good for me. <laughs> um, so she does all of this, and then she takes a world trip, and then she quits reporting. She takes a huh. job writing serial novels for publisher Norman Monroe's weekly New York Family Story paper. And between 1889 and 1895, she writes 11 novels. Most of them were thought lost until 2021 when author David Blixt announced he had found some copies, which I think is really cool. I haven't seen them yet, but I'm like, dude, if that's true, that's kind of neat. That is neat. And then she, yeah, yeah, I, I would be very curious because they were almost like like dime store novels, like penny novels, yeah. um, penny dreadfuls. Yeah, at the time, they were kind of like that. So she does all of this and then she kind of fades from view for a little while. Uh, she gets married in 1895. She marries millionaire manufacturer Robert Seaman. He was 73. Hmm. All right. And in failing health, and she was 31. Interesting. In interesting. I know. I was like, ooh, buddy. Um, a little bit of a problem. See, she's, she's done all of these things that people told her she couldn't do, and she got used to that. And then when she was told, hey, you can't do this because you don't actually have the background or education or experience, like running her husband's company after he dies. Mm -hmm. um, she is she succeeds her husband as the head of the ironclad manufacturing company when he dies in 1904. Um, her desire to treat workers fairly and ensure they had a living wage helped those under her employ. But, quote, she ran her company as a model of social welfare, replete with health benefits and recreational facilities. But Bly was hopeless at understanding the financial aspects of her business and ultimately lost everything. Unscrupulous employees bilked the firm for hundreds of thousands of dollars, troubles compounded by protracted and costly bankruptcy litigation. And so after her husband's death, and this all falls through, she goes back to reporting writing interesting articles like suffragists are women are men superiors <laughs> which you know and she managed to accurately predict that 1920 would be the year women would get the right to vote in the u.s bly died on january 27th 1922 of pneumonia at saint mark's hospital in new york city she was only 57 years old pneumonia, to this huh? day with pneumonia, yeah, pneumonia back... Even now it's gnarly, but back then, oof. Uh-uh. Yeah, that would have been a horrible death. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
To this day, places where the severely mentally ill are held are cold, cruel buildings with ill treatment and unsafe, unsanitary conditions. They're now largely called psychiatric hospitals, and they have been likened to prisons rather than places of care. Quote, psychiatrist Thomas Zaz in Hungary has argued that psychiatric hospitals are like prisons, unlike other kinds of hospitals, and that psychiatrists who coerce people into treatment or into involuntary commitment function as judges and jailers, not physicians. If you want to learn more about the mental health crisis, particularly in the U.S., I highly recommend the book Bedlam, An Intimate Journey into America's Mental Health Crisis by Kenneth Paul Rosenberg. Uh, Dr. Rosenberg gives readers an inside look at the historical, political, and economic forces that have resulted in the greatest social crisis of the 21st century. The culmination of a seven-year inquiry, Bedlam is not only a rallying cry for change, but also a guidebook for how we move forward with care and compassion, with resources that have never before been compiled, including legal advice, practical solutions for parents and loved ones, helping finding, help finding community support, and information on therapeutic options. It is a very upsetting but very well done book. He is a psychiatrist, this um, Kenneth Paul Rosenberg, and he basically is like, yeah, my first assignment was in one of these psychiatric hospitals and it almost broke me. Yeah, no kidding. So yeah, Nellie Bly, mental health, locking women up for no reason, and Nellie Bly going, mm, don't tell me no because I'm going to do it anyways, even if maybe I shouldn't maybe do it. <laughs> <laughs> When I don't know how to run a company. <laughs> she tried. She had the right intents. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Intense, but I I appreciate that there are, she is still a figure of interest. Mm -hmm. Even now. There are kids books written about her. Um, there's like a whole National Geographic series that's been done about her. Um, it, uh, of course, usually largely focuses on, like, she traveled around the world, not she spent a week in an insane asylum and <laughs> barely got out of there with her own sanity, let alone her life kind of a thing. But then we'd have to be critical of the, you know, American mental health system, so. Oh, now why would we go and fucking do that? Don't you talk that nonsense. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> All right, well, that was dope. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. I really, I don't think I knew anything about her before, so that's pretty cool. I definitely want to read yeah, the yeah, uh, she... series, the article. Yeah, it is, it is well worth the read. Um, she does not skimp on what she sees, and those quotes I pulled were directly from her reporting, so she, she did not hold back. That's it for this week, but next week we are back, and Nathan's going to tell us about the cult that operated in our own backyard of Vancouver Island led by the mysterious Brother 12. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. Have a story you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or you just want to say hi? You can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get in on the fun, you can come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. <laughs>